When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode of See Here is dedicated to the memory of Mr. Hardy Fox of the Cryptic Corporation. <laughs> to episode 111 of the See Here podcast. My name is Morris Bristinski. Thanks very much to the Pantheon Network of Music Podcasts for allowing us to be on their network. Joining me on the show, as he always does, my great friend and partner in crime from Brantford, Mr. Tim Merrill. Howdy. Now, unfortunately, we don't have our other great friend and partner in crime, uh, Ms. Kerry Gately-Fristow. Family emergency has had to call her away. We hope everything is okay with you, Kerry, and look forward to having you back when you're up to being back. But Tim and I will soldier on. You've selected this month's film. Theory of Obscurity, a film about the residents. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the trailer and then we're going to come back and I'll let you lead on this because <laughs> you're the resident resident guru. So we'll be back in a moment. Here's a trailer. You're listening to See Here 111. There is a long history of masked people in pop culture. In a way, I think of the residents like the rock and roll version of masked wrestlers, secret identities and all that. We love the conceptual seriousness of their work, what they were dedicated to, the multimedia approach. They were having fun as artists. They never sit still in one place. They're always building something or invading something. that came out of the arts, a group that really understood language and was very sensitive to music. They're this mysterious band, who are they? They have their own story, their own myth. For the residents to be anonymous gives them license to do anything. Eyeballs, top hats, that's the residence. God damn it.
And we're back from break. Morris over here, Tim over there. This month's film is Theory of Obscurity, a film about the residents. The director is Don Hardy, who it looks like he also wrote, produced, cinematographed and edited a one-man team. The film came out in 2015 and features such luminaries as Les Claypool of Primus, Matt Groening, Jerry Harrison, a talking head in a film with talking heads. That'll make some sense. And Penn Jillette. Here's a summary, not the synopsis from IMDb. It says, Theory of Obscurity tells a story of the renegade sound and video collective known as The Residence, a story that spans 40 years and is clouded in mystery. Many details surrounding the group are secret, including the identities of its members. Our film takes viewers inside this incredibly private group with unprecedented access to their archives and their recent 40th anniversary tour. The Residence have have released more than 60 albums performed all over the world and inspired many people to be weird, take chances and find their own voice. Now our film will introduce the residents to a whole new generation. Appropriately, the synopsis was written by someone called Anonymous. So I want to get into all sorts of things here, like what the theory of obscurity actually is. But I want to start off by asking you, Tim, when was your introduction to the residents? Okay. Well, how can I begin this? First off, I want to say that the residents are what I like to refer to as a non-band. They're funny, but they're not. They're kind of scary, but they're not. They're anonymous, but they're not. They're art, but they're not. They're the greatest contradictory collective that are out there. And with so many groups, people can say, well, what do they sound like? And you can give them a reference. But with the residents, it's almost impossible. It's like that famous, I think it was Zappa who said, you know, uh, talking about writing about music is like dancing about architecture. That quote has been accredited to him, although I do believe it's been accredited to other people, but I'll, right. I'll accept it as Zappa. Yeah. To me, that's the residents. Like you have to kind of experience the residents, see the residents, hear the residents, take them in on their own terms, even in a bite sized bit to really get the gist of what they're about. Now, that's exactly what happened with me, was the first time that I had experience with a residence, as you just asked, was probably around, I'd say about 83, 84. I was in the middle of high school, I think. And PBS, late night, they used to show all kinds of odd little artistic things, you know, public television. And the residents had these short little films that they put out. They put a compilation in these short little films. I saw some of that on YouTube. Was it called Icky Flicks? Well, no, Icky Flicks came later. Okay. Icky Flicks was a compilation of all their collective of their different periods of time. But I'm talking about the little short little two-minute movies that they were doing in the beginning. And there was one in particular, Hello Skinny. Skinny was born in a bathtub and grew so incredibly thin that even the end of an eyedropper sucked him in. Now Skinny never knew any questions and Skinny never looked at lights, but Skinny sold something every single night. And the minute I heard this bassoon, it just scared the shit out of me. And then the, the visuals came up, and I had just recently seen a racer head, I, and I had thought, this is this is the Lynch. But lo and behold, Lynch came before this. You know, Racerhead was, what, 77, 78? And the, the short films of The Residents, the initial short films, was released, and Hello Skinny was released in 1980. But it had that otherworldly, you know, minimalistic, you know, you're voyeuristic looking at something you're not supposed to be looking at. It was just frightening. And then after that, I happened to work at a radio station, and lo and behold, on the shelves, I found a number of years later, Third Reich and Roll, and then I found, you know, God in Three Parts, and then I just went down the rabbit hole with the residents, you know. Initially, too, as well, I first started thinking, okay, you know, these guys are just artistic, and I didn't realize that they were pranksters, because I'm watching again one of these short films that they did, with them all covered in paper, looking like the Ku Klux Klan wearing cones in a room full of newspaper, and they're beating on rocks and stones and drums looking like some type of otherworldly cavemen, and I'm hearing this rhythm, and I'm going, wait a minute, this rhythm sounds vaguely familiar in a really obtruse way, but what the hell is this? And then after watching it a number of times, I went, 
holy shit, this is Wilson Pickett. Land, Land of a Thousand Dances, yes. as primally as you could you can imagine going, oh, okay I know what's going on here I guess what I, I want to say before we continue is that to me the residents are like alien archivists well, well let's just say to people that don't know the residents visually you've seen them but you probably haven't seen them. if you've ever seen an image of four guys in tuxedos with eyeballs with top hats then you've seen the residents but now they don't even have four guys with eyeballs it's three guys with eyeballs and the guy with a skull because one of the eyeballs was stolen that's another story but no I want to say that the residents are like these alien archivists where they're kind of tuning in to earth they're tuning into what we are and they're trying to rebroadcast it to their own type of MTV or whatever. And so initially, they're getting staticky images of Earth or staticky sounds of Earth. So they're trying to reinterpret it the best they can with Land of a Thousand Dances and everything else. And as they go on, they skew popular American culture. You know, they, they skewed James Brown, they skewed John Philip Sousa, Hank Williams, Elvis Presley, yep, the Beatles, everybody, right? And again, it's like them trying to kind of reinterpret for their own society. And then as they go on through their career, the signal coming in from Earth becomes more and more pronounced. So then they can actually start to edit in their own kind of beliefs and their own kind of viewpoints in with what they're getting tuned in from Earth. I hope this is all making sense. If I'd never seen the film, I'd wonder whether it would. But having watched the film, I've tried to immerse myself in as much of the music as I can over the last few weeks, because let it be known here that until you pick this film, I mean, I knew the eyeballs and I knew that my son Max had gone and recommended to me for ages. You've got to watch this film. You've got to watch this film. But it took until now before I actually immersed myself in the film, watch it a couple of times and listen to a bunch of the albums just to get an idea as to what they were doing. So in that regard, yes, what you're saying, I am getting it. Right. It's not like they're covering people or covering culture. It's more like they're like a mother bird chewing it up and then spitting it back into open mouths. You know, <laughs> I mean, they, that's what they do. And they're almost, and it's weird too, because they're almost like, you know, in a way too, the residents are like the famous Greek chorus. And they're also like Plato's cave where they're painting pictures on a wall and you're kind of thinking that you see a certain thing, but it's not exactly what you see. They're holding up the sideshow mirror to humanity in a lot of ways. And you're seeing the distortions, you're seeing the naked truth, you're seeing things that make you laugh, you're seeing things that make you scared, you're seeing things that are touching. And I think the residents, in a way, also, their performances are like ritual. It isn't really so much like you're going to see a band, per se, or you're going to see, you know, an opera, per se, or, you know, a musical. It's all of that, but none of it. But every show that they do, it's like a ritual. It's like they're just conjuring these things that these stories and and some of these stories are old stories. And I mean, stories they haven't even written. For example, like the Bible, the Wormwood, the story of Elvis Presley. They make tapestries out of these woven stories and legends and concepts. And I'll stop right now. I, we we got to get it's, it's just it's so difficult to really put them into a box and just say this is what they are. It's a 90 minute film. And I think I was speaking to Max once again. And I said to him after we watched it together. I said, I can't make up my mind who this film is for. Is this for hardcore residence fans or is this for people who like me who didn't know anything about them and he said no this is a primer you think you know the residents you don't know the residents but hey here are these guys this is a little bit about what they're about now go and investigate a whole lot further i guess after watching it the second time 
I could sort of see that. But the first time, even as a primer, a lot of it left me confused as to, hang on, who's that again? What was the cryptic corporation? And so I, I did a whole lot of reading. And, and the second time, things fell more into place. And yet, of course, I still don't know anything really about them. But there was, like, all throughout the film, there were these screen quotes. And I think one might have been from Matt Groening saying something to the effect of, you can't really get the history of the residents so clouded in secrecy you're never really going to know anything and that's absolutely perfect that's the way it's got to be right, right. so so in that regard one thing i liked about this film there's plenty of stuff to talk about but one thing that i liked was that with a group that's created their own mythology or non-mythology as it were right. it could have been very tempting to make a film about the residents in the style of the residents make it more avant-garde but for the most part this film is told in a very conventional manner and I gotta say I think it is all the better for that like several months ago uh, whenever it was I went to see Moon Age Daydream the, right. doc- the film about David Bowie and that was completely an avant-garde art piece, which I really, really enjoyed. But watching this, I'm super glad they didn't take that approach to a thing about the residents because me as a newbie, I would never have understood anything about what made them important. Right. Well, actually, you know, what's interesting is I think it was actually in the early late 80s, early 90s, there was a, a UK program that came out. And they did a, I think it was like a, almost like Jonathan Ross, like incredibly strange films type of thing. Mm-hmm. But it was narr- it was narrated and hosted by Penn and Teller, and it was all about the residents. And it was done in that kind of obtruse, and here's a residence, you know. And then they show the videos, and they show, you know, the violinist fats, the film, and, you know, they show bits and pieces. But they never really, it was, you know, that kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek Penn and Teller. And they hired these two guys that were bean counters for the Cryptic Corporation because the residents really just couldn't handle the bookkeeping and they just couldn't be bothered with any of this you know and so they were going out about like it it was very obtruse and you're right it, if you really want to get to kind of the core of what these guys are all about it's like a mushroom trip you know like you when you're in the middle of a mushroom trip and then when you're out of it you can sit back and look from the outside and look back at it you know what i mean but when you're in it you're just going what the hell is going on <laughs> What is this? And that would have made this film a lot more difficult to watch if it had been like that mushroom trip, which is not to say that this film is a straight out chronological story no. of their existence. There's a bit of that at the beginning of the film showing their early days going from Louisiana to San Francisco before they moved to San right. Mateo, their early days. So there's a little bit about that to put it in context. But much of the film is talking about the fact that I can't remember who it is. Someone's talking about their artwork. Maybe it's one of the guys in the cryptic corporations talking about the... Imp- no, actually, sorry. It was Jerry Harrison of Talking Heads right. talking about the importance of their artwork, talking about how their albums, everything that they ever recorded and filmed has been put in a frozen archive in MoMA. Right. Well, at the end, like, it's funny because, like, you think about how long these guys have been doing this and you're thinking about where to begin with the residence. And then you see the end, and no spoiler, but at the end of the film, they're setting up this permanent archive and it's in a refrigerator mm. and you see them putting in discs blu-rays and dvds and cd-roms and t-shirts and it's like they feel literally cram this refrigerator full of like it's just it's just massive thing that I had a reservation about with the film but I mean your explanation previously about well they're musicians but they're not they're this but they're not may have answered this but we get the impression from this film yeah they were important because they were avant-garde and they were doing their own thing and all the stuff in relation to the theory of obscurity which I want to come to in a moment right but I went out to listen to a bunch of their albums so I went and listened to Dark Stab and the commercial album and meet the residents to get an idea and Eskimo to to get an idea of well oh, Eskimo's favorite well that's the different one to get an idea well what makes them musically important beyond the fact that they did what they did coming in as a newbie one right. thing that I think that the film it makes mention of these albums but there's no 
one saying, hey, this album is really good because it took this approach to deconstruction. And as a music fan, I mean, but you're saying they're more than just music, which I appreciate. But if they make albums, you have to take the music as its own thing because you're not getting the visuals, you're not getting the eyeballs, you're not getting the short films, you're listening to the music and that is all. I need to know, well, why is it in context? Why is this music important? We're not getting, well, this is like uh, as important as, I don't know, Sergeant Pepper was or in the Court of the Crimson right, King. Right. You see, here's something that I wanted to add, and I was going to say this later, but this is the perfect time now, is that the only complaint I have about the film is that it almost seems like there needs to be a volume one and a volume two, where they actually have the chronology of the residents in volume one, as we see, and volume two could get into all their periods and the albums and focus on the albums, you know, and how relevant the albums were and what they were really doing. And But you see, the thing is, with the residents and with their spokespersonnel, Homer Flynn, I think that their kind of attitude, and it's not a lazy thing, I think it's an actual good thing. They're like, well, we want to give you some stuff, but we don't want to give you too much. We want you to make it up, you know, decide for yourself. The meaning is your meaning. What you get out of it, it's important to you. We don't want to tell you what the meaning is, right? And I mean, some people could chalk it up to laziness, but I don't think it is at all. I think they're just kind of saying, our babies are out in the world now. Now they're your babies. Do with it what you will. Interpret it as you may. But I still think, like, again, one of the faults of the film, if there's any, is that, yeah, you're right. There absolutely needed to be a focus on on, you know, the commercial album. And, and they and they skipped over a lot of great things like The King and I, The Freak Show, The Midway Album, like all this stuff. 60 albums and maybe more by now because, you know, this was made like nearly 10 years ago. Uh, yeah. But 60 albums, of course, they're not going to cover absolutely every single thing although i mean maybe that was partly a mistake of the documentary about sparks because they actually deliberately did focus a little bit on every album and you didn't need to do that but in this case maybe a little bit but having said that if it's the role of a film like this to make the viewer say hmm i really want to go out and listen to some of this music i 100 percent got that after watching this it wasn't just because well i need to be armed a little bit in conversation for the show i thought after watching this i really want to go out and listen to some of this music and you know what the good thing is since i've listened to what i've listened to i want to listen to some more i want to go out and buy a couple of cds i just want to ask you now and 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 not so much in a discussion of the film from what you've heard what really grabbed you what really uh, I'll put them in two categories here because there was their deconstruction of songs like Land of a Thousand Dances right. and Constantinople here I come Constantinople here I come Constantinople I am coming Constantinople here I come here I come Constantinople here I come Constantinople I am coming Constantinople here I satisfaction and so there was my admiration of that because of thinking huh i thought i knew these songs this is completely different but on the other hand you know so-called original stuff and not to take a swipe at devo but everybody thinks devo were the only ones originally deconstructed satisfaction right well exactly i mean that's a different version yet again absolutely and and there's a devo connection which we should discuss it's in the film Mm -hmm. but on the other hand yeah i listened to duck stab and yeah, I was really enjoying that. And there was a, I think there was a song, I can't remember, it was on that album or on Meet the Residence song called Bach is Dead. 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 That really grabbed me. So look, the thing is that this music, for anyone out there who hasn't listened to anything that they've done before, at least based on my limited experience, my initial impression is that this is, I mean, yes, it's avant-garde, but this is not like listening to Trout Mask Replica. This is not no. This is not music concrete. It's weird, but it is melodic and it is very accessible. And right. yesterday, Max said to me, I'm going to show you a video. This is a song I hadn't listened to called The Gingerbread Man. Ten minutes and I mean great short film great clip but very melodic very accessible
so haunting. Yes, exactly. Yeah, but here's a funny thing. The whole thing um, with the gingerbread man, there's a bit about the aging rock star. Mm, mm. That bit spoke volumes. That was yeah. so and incisive. And it's like, you know, where he says, you know, and if I put a bullet in my brain, then I'd go out like her Cobain. Once upon a time, I played electric guitar And they said I was a rock and roll star Now nobody calls me on the telephone So I sit and watch my TV all alone Maybe if I put a bullet in my brain They'd remember me like Kurt Cobain You know who was singing that? Who was that? Who's doing that? Todd Rundgren. Really? Now I've got an even deeper connection. But the whole thing of the gingerbread man is all about people chasing chasing their lust, chasing something that's elusive. All four stories are about people wanting something so desperately bad, they can't get a hold of it, they can't grasp it. What if, you know, imagine because you know, the residents put out their own label, Ralph Records, we should say, they had their own label that to put out their things. But if you were trying to get a label, put out your album, and then the label's like, okay, well, you want us to bankroll this record, well, what's it about? It's about people who are chasing shit. <laughs> and it's like what it's about it's about people like lust and greed and fame and all the stuff that people try to chase and they can never get yeah i'll see you guys later <laughs> but that's what the album is but these guys were probably early innovators of the independent record label sort of knowing that mm-hmm. or they'd originally tried to record for warner brothers records because they'd heard that Warner's was pretty adventurous. I mean, they had Captain Beefheart, Beefheart on the label. Yeah. It's actually, I know that it seems like fool's folly to try and compare them to anyone, but I think I read somewhere that they'd been compared to Captain Beefheart, of course, Sun Ra, and mm-hmm. someone who Bernie and I discussed on episode in the few months that you were away, the film was Sound Mechanic, and that spoke a lot about a guy called Harry Parch. Uh, oh, yeah, the Harry Parch band, yep. You know, Harry was someone who experimented a lot with Michael tonal music uh, right. and so they said yeah he was an influence on what they did but anyway coming back to this story so they had originally thought well Captain Beefheart on Warner Brothers you know well he's a hero to us well we can see if uh, we can get on the label and certainly I've read a great book in the last few months about the history of Warner Brothers records and they were certainly a label that believed in working on an artist over the long term if it didn't sell the first album okay well we'll give you another three or four albums to find your audience but of course there was nothing quite like the residents that was on the warner brothers label they were maybe i don't know that warner were necessarily hugely adventurous but they were certainly very at least according to the book in those early days fairly nurturing of artists that they did bring aboard right well you know what's really interesting to me is that i mean it was not exactly the same thing but i look at like for example carl stalin Okay, the Looney Tunes. The the Looney Tunes composer. A lot of that music that he created, a lot of that is very, very similar to some of the resident stuff. Because, I mean, like, if you think about it, like, for example, Powerhouse, you know, that that could be almost like a, like a resident song, right? The way there's some of their stuff, it's almost like it's, um, I'm not saying it's cartoon music. I'm just saying that it's it's music where for visuals. That right. You can really, you, you close your eyes, you can see visuals in your, you know, and that's where a lot of people used to do acid mushrooms and, you know, <laughs> and listen to the residents and close their eyes and see visuals. You know, but I'm but I'm just saying that to me it's ironic that Warner's had classic composers and guys that were doing really obtruse music that was used for cartoons, and years later they look at guys that were doing really obtruse music and saying, "Yeah, made for us." Although 
Although, mind you, they did have Van Dyke Parks on their label. Right. And I can't remember who it was. One of the heads at Warner Brothers was a champion for Van Dyke Parks. And I think he's someone who the residents would have admired his compositional style. And certainly when the album didn't really sell that well because it was that challenging to pop listeners of the time did Warner Brothers drop him no they said no no you right. still stay on the label I think he continued to work as like in-house producer or something like that but he was very treasured as artists were at Warner Brothers in those days right well what's funny like you mentioned also one of the, the albums there the Eskimo record Well, let's just say, like, there were periods in time for myself and for some people I knew that in our youth, our experimental youth, we would uh, find various ways to basically alter our uh, perception. And some of my friends and I, we used to have what we would call our head records. The head records were when you're going to get out of your head, you had that, that go-to, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, that was the Eskimo record. The first time I got out of my head and put that on, it absolutely petrified me. And then I had to put it on when I was completely straight and it petrified me. And, but what's really funny is the more you get into it, they're basically taking the piss out of the stodginess of these documentary shows like PBS or like these archaeologists, you know, like you see the little guy with the bow tie and the pipe. <laughs> and, he's, and he's, you know, he's kind of, allow me to to pontificate. That's what it really is. That's what Eskimo is. Is It's kind of like they're saying, well, okay, you, you think we are alien culture. Well, let us introduce you to an alien culture within your culture. Mm. There's some things that people today could misinterpret because they would say that it's cultural appropriation. Well, no, it's not cultural appropriation because it's not even really a culture, what they're doing. They're making it all up. And on top of it, too, they're not taking the piss out of indigenous culture either. They're actually saying how incredible the whole thing is of, of people living on the fringes of the earth and how barren and how desolate and how isolated like an alien landscape. Imagine, you know, like I said, going back to my earlier explanation about being aliens, imagine aliens looking at the rural indigenous populations of the northern climes of like, you know, the Arctic and Canada going, oh, you have your own aliens. Oh, wow. You know, <laughs> and then them, them actually saying, oh, OK, this is what that is. This is what we think this is, you know, or, or they're kind of retelling of it. You know what I mean? So what do you think of the Eskimo record, though? I confess I couldn't play it the whole way through, maybe because I did didn't have the uh, mind-altering means and methods. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. it's an album that seems more to me interesting conceptually rather than something mm-hmm. that I'd listen to back to front, as opposed to the commercial album, the Meet the Residents album, oh, yeah. the Duck Stab, and I'm sure there are many others. But but I certainly found it interesting conceptually. That's for sure. Yeah, there's a guy in the film who actually says, you know, you can't do the dishes and listen to the residents, right? You you should actually just really try to listen to them. Now, here's a funny thing, though. With the Eskimo record, you know, even with a lot of different of the different residence records, not giving away a spoiler or anything, but you live in a suburban area, and, you know, and on a Sunday afternoon, you might hear your neighbors putting on the latest top 40 stuff. Now, imagine on a Sunday, you know, a Sunday, Sunday afternoon, and you decide at four o'clock in the afternoon to throw on the Eskimo record full blast. I might think about doing that on New Year's Day, actually. Too. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right? <laughs> Your neighbors suddenly are going to call the cops, right? Because they're going to say, oh, my God, man, like, what, what type of ritual is going on over there? And here's another thing, too, right? We keep talking about how obtruse uh, the residents are as well. Now, they actually had a dance floor hit at one point, believe it or not, because 
They did an album called Stars and Hank Forever that was a tribute to John Philip Sousa and Hank Williams. And they do a cover of Kalijah. And what it was was they mixed Michael Jackson's beat of Billie Jean, that do 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 with Kalijah. And they did the lyrics of Kalijah over Billie Jean. Wow. But that's sort of become a very common thing in recent years, hasn't it? That's the mashup. Absolutely. But they were doing, they did this in 1985. Wow. And I remember going to clubs when I was in university and actually them, the DJ playing that and people get hit the floor and it was just like and i just thought oh my god this is amazing man because this is like so subversive that you have no idea then they, they, they could actually this will go with this and this is going to be the way we want to do it i'm sticking my chocolate and your peanut butter and there you go you know and yeah I wanted to bring up the title of the film, Theory of Obscurity. So if you go to the website, meettheresidents.fandom.com, there's a description there that's attributed to someone called N. Sonata, uh, who was apparently born Nigel Sinatra. uh, And he supposedly introduced this theory to the band members in the early 70s, which was, and here's the quote, an artist does their best work when working in obscurity, even to the point of complete seclusion, unhampered by expectations expectations or influence of their potential audience. This theory is best known for inspiring the residents' philosophy of anonymity and ambiguity, end quote. So the whole basic notion of saying that an artist will do their best work when there's no audience expectations of them makes 100% sense to me. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, even though we don't see their faces and we supposedly don't know who they are, uh, there's theories about that as well. But the thought that occurred to me is even though we don't know who the ident- the individual identities of the residents are so there's none of the cult of personality yeah. but we know that when we listen to a residents album their shtick I'd hate to use that word but their thing is the eyeballs or whatever or the masks the, the, the thing is we know what we expect out of a residents album so there is a level of expectation but having said that right. I also imagine that your typical hardcore residents fan is going to say hey, I'm happy to go wherever you want. Or they don't go to a concert and say, you didn't play that favorite song of mine off Duck Stab. They're going to go wherever they want to go, but they do have an expectation of be weird. Don't do something like any other artist. Authenticity. There's an expectation from their audience. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, but here's the funny thing is that the whole thing about obscurity and all this, I mean, even the name Ensenada, it's all bullshit because there's actually a place in California called Ensenada. (laughs) But here's, here's what's interesting to me is I think the theory of obscurity in a way is kind of a load of bunk because for one, they sent their tape to Warners. Mm-hmm. Two, they were saying, well, we've got to send out promo shots, so we want people to see us, but we don't want them to see us. So then they, they and in the film, they talk about originally the eyeballs are supposed to be silver spheres and just how they worked on the concept of what they wanted to be perceived as. Well, why do you want to be perceived? Right. You know what I mean? And and there it goes on and on. And then they have their own record label. You know, if you're recording within the deep dark bowels of somewhere, you don't want you know anybody to know about it. If it's a dirty little secret, then why are you, you pressing vinyl? And that's why I talked about there being a non-band. They wanted to be anonymous, but they weren't anonymous. You know, they didn't want to be really famous, but they became famous, right? Like it's just there's all these contradictions in it all. I wanted to bring up some other bands. I mean, probably to add more fuel to that argument about the theory. Of- of obscurity even if it holds some weight it doesn't hold weight for other bands that go behind masks so you and i did an episode a few months ago about the guard documentary um and i don't remember whether it's said in the documentary or in their history and i know you probably would whether their identities were a known thing to anyone outside their inner circle in the early days of the band oh yeah Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it just gave them, so right, we've got this cartoon that we're creating here. 
here. And while we're on stage, this is who we are. So it's that for them, it was all about theatre. For Kiss, it was certainly all about theatre. But but you know, Kiss was funny though because Kiss were the first guys. I mean, I remember being in public school where it's just like somebody came to school and went, "Yeah, these are the four guys in Kiss without makeup." No way, man. How do you know? How do you know nobody's ever seen them without their makeup? You know, like how do you know it's them? And then it just got to a point where it was just like, who gives a shit? Like, this is just ridiculous. <laughs> I want to bring up an Australian band who I'm sure any of the local listeners will know about. Tism. I figured you'd know about them. Uh, yeah. Stands for This Is Serious Mum. And Joanne went to see This Is Serious Mum in the 80s, I think, at a university gig. Now, it was rumoured for years that the band was populated by lawyers or teachers or other professionals whose careers could be in jeopardy if the things that they were saying or singing about were linked to them. I think there's also been another story that said there were guitarists and members of other considerably bigger bands who just wanted to be able to say the stuff that they didn't dare do in their commercially successful outfits. So in their case, they wore all sorts of bed sheets and masks and all sorts of things for years. They changed it up every time they went out with a different album, I believe. But they had songs like... defecate on my face and all homeboys are dickheads. But the point is their obscurity was less for the freedom to create art in a way that put them away from pressure from their fans, but just more about they're a bunch of naughty private schoolboys who wanted to be able to say things and get away with it. And right. their theory of obscurity was not about the pressure from the fans. They were all too willing to give more of what they were doing, but it was right. just about hiding behind masks because they didn't necessarily want to get themselves in trouble to say what they wanted to say. Let me bring up one more band as well, and I think that they're very, and that they were influenced by the residents in a way, is uh, Skinny Puppy. Canadian band mm-hmm. because their singer Nevik Ogre like he would come out in a mask many times on stage he'd come out distorted they come out very theatrical they do uh, a lot of silhouette stuff behind behind a sheet it was more of an art show with music and but the music was first and foremost but it was all visual as well as auditory but here's the thing though for them like I said earlier the residence shows are like rituals and, you know, there's certain things that occur to every show and they bring in symbolism and they may not look the same because as you see, as they go on, the residents don't really have the eyes anymore, but they're still coming out in adornments, you know, they're coming out in their costumes. And it was the same thing with Skinny Puppy. But when you look back at like primal times, people danced around fires and furs, they wore masks all kinds of primitive cultures mm-hmm. as a way to kind of get closer to some type of otherworldly expression. And I think that's what the residents are all about in a way, in the same way the skinny puppy is. Is that It's like, who gives a shit who I am? It's not about who I am behind this. It's what is going on right now. Right. So in that regard, the residents is less of a band, less of an art collective and more of an idea. So that means that the people who were behind the masks in the mid 70s are not necessarily the same people who are they're not in, in the bands now but but it's okay because unlike the cult of personality where people get all upset thinking well i'm just watching basically a cover band of my favorite band because there's only one original member residence fans they don't know who's behind the mask or maybe they sort of suspect it's the members of the cryptic corporation but that notwithstanding it doesn't matter that the people there because as long as that sort of music that sort of creativity that art that's being created is put in front of them, then it can be anyone. They could do a franchise just like they did at the Wiggles. There's different Wiggles bands around the world and the young kids, they don't give a shit that it's not no. the original Wiggles. But even even in the, the film, like Les Claypool says, you know, all these people swore I was one of the residents. You know, like, it's like, you know, I, no, I'm not, but I, I love to be, but, you know. But the irony is, is that he actually donned a pig mask in a recent resident show and he actually sang Hello Skinny. He actually became part of the show, which probably was a dream come true for him. Right. I mean, although I think he said in at one part in the film that the first time he heard them, he didn't get it. He didn't actually no. like it the first no. time he heard them. No, because residents too, I think it's kind of like, it's like with jazz. Okay. When we were kids, I remember hearing jazz for the first time and people saying, oh, you're not old enough yet to get jazz, you know, or you're not old enough to get the blues. You can't feel the blues. You're not old enough, you know. 
And I think it's like some of my favorite music of all time. When I hear something that I immediately glom onto and go, yes, a lot of it within six months, I'm like, okay, I get it. I'm done. Right. But then there's other things that I've heard the first time I've heard it. I just like, no, no. What is this cacophony? What is this bullshit, man? I don't get this at all. But yet there's something in there that I'm just like, I got to dig through the garbage because there's a pearl in there somewhere. There's something in here that people are telling me or something in here. My spider sense is telling me that there's something in here. And then one day it just, you're going, okay, I get it. It's kind of kind of like those claw games, you know, like where you, you know, you're trying to get that one doll in the midst of all the garbage, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and you find it and you find to get it. I also wanted to add too as well, something that we need to do as well about rough records, that the residence label, by putting out their albums, they actually were able to make connections to other like minds. Well, actually, one of the names that I recognized was Fred Frith, who's, right. uh, who's a big guy in experimental uh, music. Right. And yeah, so yeah, I, I was thinking, oh, wow. Okay, he was on their label. Fred Frith, there was Snake Finger, there was Ronaldo in the Loaf, Yellow. It's almost like what they were doing with experimental sound and with their kind of approach, it was almost like zine culture in the 80s, fanzine culture. Because mm-hmm. when somebody was just like, I really love this shit and I'm going to photocopy like four or five pages together of all the shit I love and mail it out to people I hope that are like minds. And then all of a sudden you find out there's like 200 other people out there that are doing the exact same thing and you just didn't know they were like minds, right? And then now it's one thing that the internet has kind of taken away is that you can immediately now go online through Google search and find a billion people that like the same thing you do in a matter of a minute and a half. Whereas at that time, it wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And the residents were just saying, well, we're doing our thing. And if you like it, great. But if you don't like it, great. You know, we're still going to do our thing. One other thing I felt like I really appreciated about this film was it gave it a contemporary context. It's one thing to go through the history, but you think, well, where are they now? And the film was scattered with what were then current performances, I think 2014. And I don't know who the singer was, whether he was a member of the residence. They know him as Randy. He sings with the band and he's another kind of extension of the Cryptic Corporation. What I liked was the fact that they actually showed the history is one thing. And there was some great historical footage from that San Franciscan residency house where we actually get to see faces. We get to see some concert footage from this contemporary tour and getting to see people in the audience who'd all found themselves, found their tribe and getting an idea of musically where they are now. It's like that 24-hour party people thing with Joy Division. I think it's Joy Division that plays and then there's all these, these 12 people that were in the crowd and then they all wound up starting bands. But that's the residents' message is do what you want to do. Be as weird or as individual as you want to be. Hell, we've made it work. I mean, at one time he says, we sold 25,000 copies of each album, which is not going to make a big star shit themselves in competition. But for them, that was perfectly big. Penn Gillette said something in the uh, the UK, or I think it might have been in this film, where he's saying, you know, that they they couldn't do things perfectly the way they really wanted to. But if they waited to get it right, they would have never done anything. Right. So they just basically, it, you, you learn as you go, but you just go with your compulsion and you just keep doing it. I mean, like, it's incredible. Just to go back for a second and talk about the film that they did, Violinous Fats, mm-hmm. that was never completed. The Residents, they went forward with their first album and it wasn't perfect, but they finished it. And then they went through and did the mold tour. And it wasn't perfect and, you know, they didn't make anything, but they finished it. And then, you know, they go out and they do the third Reich and roll and, you know, it wasn't perfect again, but they finished it. But they just kept going and going and perseverance. In the mole uh, show, the story of the moles, are they just keep digging up because they just want to hit the surface. They want to get out from underneath the darkness. And it's kind of a metaphor for what the residents kind of were. They were still buried in darkness and still digging, still digging, still digging, you know. Villainous Fats, the film, when you see what they were doing and having all these people on board, it's not so much obscurity, but it's about availability. This idea of whatever was available, they used. 
when the one guy's talking in the documentary about, you know, he says, man, I, I wish some of the color footage was still around. And he's showing those Polaroids of the color shots of the film. It looks amazing. But for that time, when it came out, they were just kept plugging away and plugging away and plugging away. And, but they never finished it. But I think it's only about 24, 25 minutes. But still. I think there's about 30 minutes. It's on YouTube. I didn't get a chance to watch that. But just watching those few little bits that they show in this documentary, it brought to mind the look of what was that film? I know you're a huge fan of it. The one with her Villachez. Forbidden Zone. Forbidden Zone. It had the look of that film, would you say? Right. That? I mean, maybe oh, yeah. even anything that they sent to film, which brings me to this other point that in the 1980s with MTV throwing millions of dollars, throwing all this money at these video clips for these big artists because I knew that the videos are what going to sell the records and the residents are sort of like the anti-80s video clip sort of mentality where big is better. It's like we're going to tell these stories and it has this minimalism just like they're deconstructing the music that we know. They're deconstructing the look of what an 80s video clip or what was perceived as to be a good 80s MTV style video clip was supposed to be about. Did they, did they get stuff on MTV actually shown? Oh, yeah. Yeah. On like later, like uh, 120 minutes, like the alternative channel, like the alternative program on, on MTV. But I was going to say that, you know, when you hit the minimal thing, you hit it right on the head because but they took that minimalism all the way right through even till today, because like there's a bit in the film where they've got three guys on stage and they're doing an Elvis cover of Teddy Bear. And two of the guys are wearing black body stocking face masks. like their heads are there and it's just so effective or the cowboys when they're doing the campfire and these eerie where they're wearing those giant cowboy hats used to wear at football games was that the was that the one where they look like silhouettes sort of right yeah, yeah. with the led lights and they've got these giant rubber band map mouse they actually were on night music uh david sanborn that uh, freaked me out because they they seem like the anti-sanborn i, I like david sanborn but right but you know who they played with on that show who was that? conway twitty <laughs> Oh, yeah, wow. they, and they actually played together yeah. with Conway Twitty. Wow. Yeah, but it works. And they had a devout respect for Conway Twitty. Well, I mean, like, this is the thing that people don't understand is that the residents weren't taking the piss. Well, they were for some things, but for a lot of things, they actually had a real honored and deep set respect for a old school country like Hank Williams, Conway Twitty, composers like John Philip Sousa. George Gershwin. Uh, George Gershwin, yeah. And they were showing their admiration by trying to reinterpret it, by kind of saying, well, for somebody who's never heard this before, what would they hear? That's what I love about them is it's like alien transmissions. To go back to your point about MTV and all these big music videos too, isn't it ironic that you'd see you know, a video like Hello Skinny of the Residents, and you see the visuals and go, what the hell does this have to do with anything? And then now I remember last weekend uh, I was watching on internet streaming and they had uh, Billy Idol's video for White Wedding come up and I'm watching it going, what the hell does this have to do with anything, man? Like the song's all right, but the visuals have nothing to do with the song. Sure. Back in the 80s, we just went along with, okay, that's the visual and that's the song and this is what I see in my mind now because this is what they presented us with with the, the visuals with the song. But now being more discriminating, you know, and being, you know, a little curmudgeon, I'm sitting back watching these 80s videos going, oh, my God. And I can't even imagine the artists now going back and looking back like 40 some odd years ago and just going, what the hell were we thinking of reading this? You know, like Duran Duran, like Hungry Like the Wolf or something like that. You know what I mean? How much of those videos really had anything to do with the performer or the artist? It was some director's vision. That's my point. Right. That's my point entirely is what I'm saying. But with the residents, they went out of their way to create 
the visuals as well as the sound. Right. They didn't have somebody else saying, well, you know, this is what we're doing musically. Uh, well, what do you got there in your toolbox that, you know, we can tickle people's eyeballs with? No pun intended. Coming back to the gingerbread man clip that I mentioned earlier on, the visuals for that, it enhances the storytelling. It's not a ref- oh, yeah. it's not necessarily trying to reflect it. It's just, well, maybe it is, but it's it's... It just tastefully enhances the story that you're hearing. Well, that's another thing, too, that, you know, when I just was mentioning tools in a toolbox, the residents were not afraid of technology. That They went and they used whatever was available. Like, I mean, they did a video of uh, for uh, their cover of uh, James Brown. It's Man's World. And I think they actually used like a Commodore Amiga to do the graphics. And now you see it, it looks rudimentary, but it looks psychedelic now. And the same thing with Gingerbread Man. Gingerbread Man, I don't know if you knew this, but it actually came out as a CD-ROM. I know that they had something to do with the age of CD-ROM. They were something yeah, well, like- they did. They put out a number of, they put out a, an album called Bad Day at the Midway. And that was on CD-ROM. They put out the Freak Show album, which was on CD-ROM. And they put out Gingerbread Man, which is on CD-ROM as well. It was an interactive CD-ROM where it played out the story. And you could go and click on certain things and see certain people's little short stories and the four stories that you saw. And But they even got they went as far as recent, uh, in the last 10 years, they actually put out a podcast. Really? With, yeah, where they were actually, the narrator I was telling you about, Randy, yeah. who was dressed up in the Santa Claus suit in the footage at the end of the film, right. or throughout the film, he's actually telling the story on their podcast, and they actually used music that they composed with their podcast, and it was a story, I think, of the Bunny Boy. And you can look this up, and it's on YouTube as well. But my point being is, is that the residents, they weren't these steadfast guys saying, look, all we're going to be is 16 millimeter, you know, all we're going to do is just four track recording and fuck everything else no they basically said okay what do we have to use what new toys can we get a hold of you know like let's see how we can tinker with this let's see how we can tinker with that and they did the idea of you not being able to put your hands around who the residents are that gives them carte blanche to do anything they want and their concept is like a flowing river it's like trying to pick up sand in your hands their concepts keep changing and they're continually relevant. They're never out of date because they just come up with a new show that is basically dealing with some of the concepts of modern times or worries or fears or, or the things that we love or the things we recognize or the things we can spoof. They're almost like a mad magazine for the Twilight Zone. They're just this kind of, again, like I said earlier, like a freak show mirror that they hold the mirror up to us and show us who we are saying, hey, if you think we're weird, take a look at this. They just hold up a mirror to you and you go, oh my God. I got lucky. I only saw them once, but there were people that came out and no word of a lie. There were people that were weeping and it was very touching because in the film, I think it's in, uh, where was it in Switzerland where they're doing the Christmas show? And you see, you know, like the Santa Claus and the snowman and Randy coming out dressed up like Santa Claus. In some ways, some of the resident shows, it's almost like Christmas morning where that feeling of wonderment, the feeling of anything is possible and what present are we going to unwrap now? And there's people that go to see the residents like this because like, as you said, you know, people have expectations and part of the expectations is not knowing what to expect. And the whole thing is, oh my God, just when I thought I had a grip on them, just when I thought I had my head wrapped around what they are, then they're all of a sudden they're just like, okay, you know, I know, you know, I've told you we're this, that, and the other thing. Well, we're going to go and run off in the field again. You want chases? <laughs> just like the gingerbread man, you know, run, run as fast as you can. You can't catch me. And that's just it. And people will keep chasing them and they'll keep going. And eventually, I don't know if I can still say, honestly, I believe that there are some elements from the 1970s residents that are still present in their current incarnation. But I, I do believe that there may be a day when the original will cease to be. And I wonder if the whole idea will continue to roll on. But that's the beauty of it. It can. And no one will be pissed off about it. Well, no one will know, presumably, about it. But once again, this is purely about the art. This is purely about the spirit of the original creation of the art. And as long as people are willing to accept that and think, oh, well, you know, if they come out and say, well, we're going to wear four different masks or we'll continue with the eye balls or whichever sort of thing will distract you from the whole cult of personality this is not about hey it's mick jagger is no longer doing vocals for the rolling stones we're gonna get some guy who played uh, down at the local pub who's gonna be the front guy it doesn't matter for the residents does it 
Right, right. No, it doesn't at all. And you see, here's a funny thing, too, right, is that it makes perfect sense that they had a connection with Penn and Teller because Penn and Teller, these guys were like the punk rock magicians where in a long time, um, a while ago, many years ago, actually, they did a show where they were basically demystifying a lot of general famous illusions. And they did this in Vegas where they were showing audiences, OK, this is how you cut a lady in half. This is how you do this. and This is how you do that. And they're like, we don't believe in magic magic is bullshit they're illusions but if you really want to know this is how they do it but then they come out and they present them and the way they present them you're going wow that's amazing right but they're telling you it's not magic it's just an illusion right so even if we show you how it's done it doesn't take away from your wonderment it's all about how you present it and that's the thing with the residents, right? Is that if the, you know if those four guys were to take off their masks and say, "Yeah, okay, this is who we are," it would almost be like watching your parents have sex. <laughs> you know, you'd be just no, you know, no, and everyone would immediately tell them, "Put the mask back on. We want to see the presentation. We don't need to be behind a curtain to see the great and mighty Oz." That's a fact. That's their identity. The identity is non-identities. Right. Is there any final thoughts that you want to bring about? The- film as film because i think we've had a pretty wonderful discussion about them as a band and a few things about the film but is there final thoughts that you have about the film itself i think they did an admirable job with this film i really do because it's like liquid mercury trying to get your hands on liquid mercury you know trying to discern what the residents are really all about and they're just so big with so many releases and so many different avenues that they've gone down you know that it's it's really hard to corral the elephant and put the elephant in 90 minutes but they managed to do so and i think that you know the residents aren't for everybody and i think that you're going to get enough of a taste with this documentary that you're going to be like i'm going to dip my toe a little further like Mm, you're saying that you want to or you'd be just like nope no that ain't for me man this is too weird this is too wacky that's perfectly fine but we're just here to say that if you fancy giving a try to something that's a little bit different but is still melodic enough for you to be able to say yeah i like that tune even if i don't quite understand the way that they play it then i'd be i'd be saying yeah you should really be giving this a try the film is pretty easily accessible too oh yeah absolutely but i was gonna say in addition to the music of the residents that that i i kind of say that they're almost the same way that frank zappa is in the sense that you can't listen to two of zappa's songs and say you've heard zappa right and say okay that's frank zappa no zappa was orchestration zappa was acoustic zappa was mothers of invention zappa was so many different things doo-wop and the residents are the same way you could hear one thing and say that's not for me but then you might grab a different album and go oh hey that's kind of neat yeah You've definitely gone and explained there my relationship with Zappa for years. I've been saying, I don't get it. I don't get it. Your good self and Barry Noble have been pushing and saying, no, try this, try that, try this. So I bought a few things over the last few months and an album that on the one hand you might say, oh, that's that's more Zappa compositionally than anything. But I found myself really enjoying the soundtrack to 200 Motels. And that's far from, that's a long way from Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. But I found myself really enjoying that and in a way as you say you know the residents embody that zappa spirit very different musically what they do but as you also say they're very different musically from themselves right but you know it when you hear it and that's the beauty of the residents too is that you know they're one of those bands where even though they could be you know diametrically opposed albums or you know things that are very very you know apples and oranges you can still know that they've put their definitive stink on you know that you know it's them. i just embrace these guys right from the beginning because something like I said it, it just perturbed me initially scared me and then when I got the gist of what they were doing it was just oh I love the rest uh, I think you'd made that abundantly clear uh, I want to say thank you very very much for picking this film because now I can say right I finally watched it and whether I go down the rabbit hole listening to all 60 albums that's not happening but certainly I've got the itch now with about you know four of these albums that I've listened to and I think I could sort of see myself so picking up CDs of a couple of the ones I've listened to and maybe listening to a few more. So I'm 
definitely want to thank you for allowing me to explore a, a musical side that I normally don't necessarily do. And right. this film, I'd recommend very much for people who you, you might have listened to this conversation and thought, well, I, I don't really get it. I don't really understand exactly what you're referring to. And that would be the case if you haven't seen the film. But this is, as I said earlier on in the show, a very easily digestible film. Don't let the fact that the band's identity and their experimentalism get in the way of watching this film because none of that moves into how the way this documentary works. It's very conventional in that way, but still, I don't mean that. It's it's conventional in a good way. So that's our recommendation here. Theory of Obscurity, a film about the residents. You'll find it on YouTube. You'll find it on, I think, Canopy's got it, probably on Prime. It's all the usual sorts of uh, places that you get your film, and maybe there's a DVD that you can get on eBay. Don't know. Let's quickly talk about next month. That's December of 2023. I actually want to make two points. Before I talk about December 2023's episode, January of 2024 sees us get to the 10-year mark. This show will be 10 years old. I don't know. I'd like to have a celebration of some sort. We already have a guest booked for an interview, a director of a film that we're going to discuss, but maybe we might do something a little bit extra. We still haven't worked out what we're going to do for the 10th birthday, but if you're listening to this and you have an idea uh, about what we should do for the 10th anniversary, just as a separate celebration, let us know. Otherwise, it'll just be, oh, well, yeah, we're 10 years. Here's another episode. But the December 2023 episode, which will be 112 of the show, we are going to be speaking to a director called Toby Amys. This is a film that's been out for a little while, although I think maybe it might be getting streaming distribution, wider distribution. Toby Amys is the director of a film called In the Court of the Crimson King, King Crimson at 50. So a lot of you may have already seen this. The film has been out for maybe about a year or so, but it's getting a wider distribution now. So we've been lucky enough to snap him as a guest for C here so immensely looking forward to speaking to him about this film talking about uh, Robert Fripp and his high standards and maybe even throw him some talk about Robert Fripp and Toya Wilcox's little videos over the course of uh, the pandemic which were highly entertaining and talk about our own love of uh, the music of King Crimson so they're not a band which um, are short on recorded output either so uh, Talk about our favourites there. So anyway, that'll be uh, out probably in the last week of December as our uh, end-of-year Christmas Hanukkah gift to you. I think that's all. If you want to join the Facebook group, we're at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast. We're on Instagram as well. If you want to look for us there as see here podcast. If you want to send us an old-fashioned email, we'd love to get that podcast at gmail.com. But really, the best thing that you can do if you uh, is just let your friends know that the show exists. If you're having a coffee with a friend who say, hey, you like music films, check out this podcast. I know that a few of you have done so, and our, grati- we absolutely, our gratitude to you. But yeah, please let people know we exist. And that's pretty much it. So until next month, look after each other, be nice to each other, listen to a Residence album, watch this film... And uh, we'll speak to you in December. All the best. Cheers. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 